0: Welcome to the Dayspring Community Church Podcast. Check out our website at dayspringonline.org. And now, Dr. Matt Friedemann.
1: If you turn in that Bible to the 31st Psalm, Psalm 33. That's uh, 31. I just said, wow. My brain. Uh, just want put this Psalm in context. And there are even kind of themes in the Psalms. Uh, I think you have to be a little bit smarter than me than see to see these themes, but I've done some research this week, and they say that Psalm 25 to 33 is a group of nine psalms that cry out to God for mercy, even more than to David's other psalms, and that's saying a lot. Cry out to God for mercy, but also suggest, but I trust in him. We're crying out for mercy, but I'm going ahead and say, yes, but we trust him, and we either appeal to or celebrate his wonderful love. And in the Old Testament, it's hesed love. New Testament, talk about agape love. But in the Old Testament, it's hesed love. And we praise him for his hesed love. We love him for his hesed love. There's an Orthodox tradition that says this. That when Jesus was on the cross, he goes to the thing he knows the best. And what he knows the best is uh, these psalms. This is his playlist, 150 songs that he knows by heart. And it says that when you cut Jesus, he bleeds scripture. So what happens in Psalm 22? When he's in one of the most anguishing time of his life, he shouts out, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which hearkens back to Psalm 22.1. Now this tradition says from that point on, he starts thinking about these Psalms. And he thinks about Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. He thinks about Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. He goes on to Psalm 25, one of my favorite psalms, very educational. Teach me, Lord, what I need to know, even here on this cross. Proceeds through all these psalms, and he comes to Psalm 31, and he begins to lose his life. In other words, he is beginning to wilt away. And he says, in his last words, Father, into your hand I commit my spirit. Psalm 31, 5. And his life ends. So this psalm is significant scripture because you'll see it in Jeremiah, you'll see it in Jonah. There's a later David. It doesn't say it's a Davidic psalm, but it sure seems like it. A later David uses this, and of course Jesus uses this psalm, as you've just heard. This is full of problems, but also a solution is stated twice. So I want, as we read through this, as Lana Jane reads through this, I want you to listen for the solution to all of David's problems and if you do I think there'll be a prominent word that comes forth would you please stand in reverence to the word of God as Lena Jane reads Psalm 31 1 to 16
0: in you O Lord I have taken refuge may never be put to shame deliver me in your righteousness turn your ear to me come quickly to my rescue be my rock of refuge a strong fortress to save me since you are my rock and my fortress for the sake of your name lead and guide me Free me from the trap that is set for me, for you are my refuge. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Redeem me, O Lord, the God of truth. I hate those who cling to worthless idols. I trust in the Lord. I will be glad and rejoice in your love, for you saw my affliction and knew the anguish of my soul. You have not handed me over to the enemy, but have set my feet in a spacious place. Be merciful to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eyes grow weak with sorrow, my soul and my body with grief. My life is consumed by anguish and my years by groaning. My strength fails because of my affliction and my bones grow weak. Because of all my enemies, I am the utter contempt of my neighbors. I may dread to my friends. Those who see me on the the street flee from me. I am forgotten by them as though I were dead. I have become like broken pottery. For I hear the slander of many. There is terror on every side. They conspire against me and plot to take my life. But I trust in you, O Lord. I say you are my God. My times are in your hands. Deliver me from my enemies and from those who pursue me. Let your face shine on your servant. Save me in your unfailing love. Heavenly Father, I thank you um, that we are able to come and fully worship you this morning. I ask, Lord, that as um, Mr. Matt preaches, that you would open up our hearts, Lord, to hear what he has to say. Lord, I ask that that this message would bring comfort, Lord, to us and strength, Lord, that you would help us to continue to re- rely on you, Heavenly Father, and I just ask that you be with Mr. Matt as he preaches, that you would just help our hearts and our, um, our minds and our ears just to open and to listen to what you have to say. You know what I pray? Amen. Amen.
1: You may be seated. So there's four quick points I w- I'd like to make this morning out of this psalm. The first one is this. God is our refuge and our spacious place. It says in here he's a spacious place as well as our refuge. Now, we got a picture up here of a fortress, that fortress i mean out of all that you could run to let's just say a, a 10 mile 20 mile 50 mile radius let's run to this place let's get inside of it so we can be safe this is our refuge this is our fortress and it looks up here like a pretty confining place really i mean out of a 20 mile radius that's what we're stuck with but the lord says no that's not what you're stuck with i am your refuge I am your fortress. I am your strength. And I happen to be a pretty spacious God. Uh, Asked a former prisoner who's part of this body. I Asked him, you know, when, when, when prisoners have a tough time making a commitment to Jesus, and he was indeed a former prisoner. When prisoners have a tough time saying yes to the Lord, what is it they're struggling with? Why don't they not only say, yes, I make a commitment to the Lord, but really and truly like some of, some of us have done today here who once were in prison and now are out and have made solid commitments to the Lord and are living out that commitment. When guys don't do that, why don't they? And it was a very profound thought to me because I don't think it's just for prisoners. I think it's for a lot of us. He said it's because we are scared about what we might miss out on. I get it. I actually get that. I understand that. Maybe you don't. But I'm thinking, yeah, yeah. Well, I came to know the Lord, and uh, the longer I lived with him, the more the Lord tugged at my heart. Matt, Matt, I need a full commitment, not just a salvation commitment, not just a commitment that says, yeah, I'm following Jesus. But now, Matt, you're beginning to understand the depth of sin in your life. You're beginning to understand what can happen when you don't follow me fully, I need for you to make a full commitment so that I can fill you with my spirit. Why was I hesitant to do that? Because I was, I was scared what I might miss out on. You see, I had some girl plans that didn't include following the Lord. Right? Right? I might have. I don't know. I wasn't much of a here, but there might have been one I wanted to go to, or maybe a, a whole bunch of them, or a group of people I want to be associated with that I wasn't quite so sure was consistent with a commitment to the Lord. I understand this whole thing of, hey, I don't know what I might miss out on. And so I've started to use this line with, uh, with with prisoners. I mean, we go out there. I, I love going out to the prison and preaching, and go into the pods and have about 10 or 15 guys, and we're all standing up, and we're preaching away at the Word of God, and I started to use this line, hey, don't be scared of what you might miss out on. Don't be scared, because God is a spacious place. I know you think it's that, but it's not that thing right there, because once you get inside of a fortress, once you get inside God's refuge, you're going to find out He's a whole lot bigger than that fortress. He's a whole lot bigger than your party. He's a whole lot bigger than your party life. He's a whole lot bigger than your town, your state, your nation. He's a whole lot bigger than your universe. He's a big God. But you're not going to know him until you narrow your possibilities to him. And when you do that, everything opens up to you in him. It's a good place to be. He is a spacious place. It doesn't look like it. That's why it takes a life of faith. By the way, I think faith is basically betting your life on God. If you're going to bet your life on God, you're saying, I'm going to bet my life on that fortress there, not knowing that once you're inside, everything opens up to you. The possibilities of Jesus open up to you. I, uh, I read this somewhere. I forget where now, but a bunch of guys were playing a, a football game and It starts raining, and it's just a real mess. And, you know, in some ways, nothing worse than playing football when it's wet. And once you're just, like, totally drenched, there's nothing better because you just start taking all kinds of risks. You think, hey, it's kind of fun to slide around, and it's easier to take, you know, big dives for balls because you know it's going to be a blast getting all muddy and it's just kind of then after the game they say hey let's go down that gully down there and start playing around So they start playing football in the gully and passing around and taking long slides you know running and running and running and going uh head first into a long 20 foot slide in, in this gully and someone yells down to them, hey are you guys nuts that's sewer water all of a sudden they're not in their dream of dream fun place anymore let's get the heck what what were we thinking let's get out of here that's kind of like that you're thinking hey it's going to close down the sewer to me if i go with god and the answer is yeah pretty much he's not going to have you playing in those sewers oh he's got a whole lot better than that planned for you but you've got to have a craziness of faith. You've got to be willing to take that leap of faith in order to know the spaciousness that is the Lord God. Second thing is this. There are breathtaking reasons why we don't trust God. If anybody in here has ever not trusted God, it may well be because you know, and, and David, for instance. David was God's anointed. I mean, for crying out loud, I'm God's anointed, then why is it I'm fleeing for my life from the king of Israel? Saul wants me dead. I've got to keep running around, hiding in caves. I am always think I'm going to be ready to lose my life. Why is this? I'm anointed. I'm God's anointed. You ever thought like that? Well, I'm kind of allowed to make a commitment to Jesus. Why is my life so hard? Why does everything seem to be going so so bad? David piles up the terminology. So most of them you can find, verse 9, if you want to look there. Verse 9 and following for several sentences. He just piles up the terminology about how bad his life is. Oh, this is God's anointed. And David says this. Net. Affliction. Troubles. Enemy. Distress. Wasting away. Grief. Sorrow. Iniquity. Reproach. The object of dread, dead man, broken vessel, slander, terror, scheming. I bet somewhere in there David's thinking, why did I ever think that being God's anointed was a cool thing? This is terrible. But get a load of this. But I trust in you. You can see it in verse 6. You can see it in verse 14, but I trust in you. Which brings me to point number three, Wormwood gets schooled. If you've never read the book, the screw tape letters, you need to do it. I have both read the book and I've seen this acted out off Broadway in New York. If you remember years ago, some of you were kind enough to say, let's, let's get Mac." with his wife to New York City where they can have some fun for a a long weekend. We went there, and one of the things we did was we went to see the Screwtape Letters off Broadway. And uh, it's an amazing, amazing, it's really not so much of a story as letters from an uncle to a nephew. It's a devil uncle trying to communicate and disciple the lessons of how to mess up a human being to his nephew. So the uncle is named Screwtape. It's the Screwtape Letters to his nephew, who is Wormwood. It's a fascinating thing, because as you read it, you're thinking, no kidding. That is how you mess up a human being. It's messed me up. So he does this, and it's quite fascinating. And C.S. Lewis, in one of his greatest moments, I think, in all of his writing, but certainly in this book, writes this. And this is Tape, the devil writing to Wormwood, the devil. And Tape says, Do not be deceived, Wormwood. Our cause, the devilish cause, the evil cause, our cause is never more in jeopardy than when a human, no longer desiring but still intending to do our enemy's will, looks round upon a universe in which every trace of him seems to have vanished. He asks, why have I been forsaken? And he still obeys. The devil's saying, hey, we're in trouble if we ever get to the point where Dayspring Community Church says, listen, my life is horrible. I feel pummeled on every side. I feel betrayed by God. But he still obeys. That church still obeys. She still obeys. I'm going to tell you, That's what Jesus' time on the cross is all about. Psalm 22, 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you turned your back on me? And he struggles with it. I know he struggles with it. You struggle with it. David struggled with it. That's what we do. We struggle with these things. It's hard to understand what in the world is going on Why is God allowing this in my life? But Jesus obeyed on the cross. David obeyed in his life. And you and I need to come to the point where no matter what happens, we will say yes to Jesus. The fourth thing is simply this. Where in the Bible do you see an example, a good example of biblical trust, of people... In Scripture, trusting the Lord. Now, the truth is, once we get going on a list, we're going to have quite a list. But I asked my discipleship groups this week, hey, where do you see biblical trust? And I like the guy that answered first. The first answer I received was Job. (laughs) No kidding. There's a guy, everything goes wrong. He's a rich guy, and then almost like that, he's a poor guy. He has lost everything. He's lost his possessions. He's lost his family. All that remains in his life, are a nagging wife and some friends that aren't really very good friends. And that's it. That's all he's got. And yet, he doesn't turn his back on the Lord. He still obeys. I like Job. Job's an interesting one. But they can continue on. Someone said Esther. Someone said Caleb and Joshua. I love that story, right? They go into the land with 12 spies. They come out and say, we've got to go get the land. God wants us to, but 10 of the Ten of the spies said, can't do it. Cities are fortified. We don't have that much faith. Noah. Noah's a big one. You talk about faith. You talk about an example of biblical trust. Stephen's an interesting one. Boy, a young guy. He's on his way up the ladder. He's got places to go. He's got things to do. God seems to be blessing him. And yet, one day, they decide to up and stone him. And while they're stoning him, what does he say? I give my life to you, O Lord almost as if he's taking a cue from Jesus into your hands. I give my life, my spirit, everything I am. And they kill him dead. And then this, someone said, Abraham. I thought, Abraham, oh, my word. What a great example. And the Jews love this example more than any other example. I, uh, I teach at Wesley Biblical Seminary. I've spent 32 years teaching there. But I went to Asbury Theological Seminary. And the guy that started Asbury Theological Seminary was a gentleman named Henry Clay Morrison. He was a very, very good preacher, very imaginative. And I I wish I had more of this kind of imagination because he thought of things that were most unusual and and kind of gave you a word picture that you could follow along with. And uh, one of his favorite sermons was on this Abraham-Isaac account. You remember what happened there? God said to Abraham... Take your son, your only son, the son that I promised to give to you. I want you to take that son. Isaac is his name, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. And I want you to sacrifice him there as a burnt offering. Kill him dead. Morse said, so Abraham lifted up that knife. He was ready to put it right into the person that he loved most the person that resembled his life and his legacy and his joy, his pride, his hope. He's about ready to do it, about ready to kill his son. And a voice said, don't touch the lad. Whew. At that point, said Morson, I started hearing, very faintly, a conversation. It was another conversation. It was a conversation between the eternal Father and the eternal Son. And the Son said, Father, this is not the last time we're going to come to this mountaintop, is it? And the Father said, no, Son, in about 2,000 years, we'll be back here. And Father, the next time we come to this mountaintop, it will not be one of them on the altar. It's going to be one of us, won't it? And the eternal Father said, yes, son. Next time we come back, one of us is going to be on the altar. And I'm going to be that one, won't I? The son asked. And the father said, that's right. And father, when they're ready to put the nails into my hands and the spear into my side, are you going to cry out, don't touch the lad? Hmm. No, son, the father said. We never ask them to do in symbol what we have not done in reality. Verse 5. I grew up saying this prayer. Maybe you did too. Now I lay me down to sleep. Anybody do this? I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, what kind of a prayer is that for a kid? If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. This right here, 31.5, was the now I lay me down to sleep prayer of the Jews. Before every kid went to bed at night, they prayed, into your hands I commit my spirit. It's more than that for us. It is the now I lay me down into the hand of God prayer. It's a spacious place, this hand of God. It's the place of trust. It's the place of faith, of hope. It's the place of tremendous abundance. It's what the Lord wants to do. It's what he's doing. Father, into your hands we commit our spirits. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. God bless you. Thank you.